Friends, have you ever had the experience or the impression that you are not what you thought you were? You might have been in a situation, let's say, at work where you thought you were doing a great job on a particular project and the, and the manager comes in and says, no, 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 wrong direction. Or you thought you were doing really well at school, students. And uh, the first exam comes around and you think you did okay. You think you actually did well. And then the, the test results come back. Like, no. No, not the way you really thought it went. Or have you ever thought, you are a good Christian. Like, I, I am good in my, my Christianity. Or I, I think I'm following the Lord and I'm, I'm good. I think I'm a good person. Look at all the good things I'm doing. And look at all the bad things that I'm not doing. I mean, my goodness, I, I'm not one of those guys who who run with knives on the bridge of London, killing people. I'm a good guy. I'm, I'm trying to be safe. I'm trying to help people live safe lives. And you, so you think, I am good. You think, well, look at how often I come to church. Look at how involved I'm in the life of the church. Look at how many people at church like me. Look at how many people at church think highly of me. And there might be a situation, there might be the reality that what you think of yourself is not really what you really are. This morning, I want us to look at a story of a prophet, of a man of God who had spoken for God, who was called to do the work of God. And he had one of these experiences of what, that what he thought of himself was actually quite different than what he really was. And he needed to get a sense of the vision of God, of who God really is, to get a sense of who he really is. And only inside, in light of that, there was hope for him. Well, this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 13. If you're new to our congregation, perhaps this might be your first time with us, uh, we encourage you to grab a Bible. If you did not bring a Bible with you, the Bible provided in the chairs in front of you, they're black. Um, encourage you to open them to page number 571 encourage you to follow along in the reading of God's Word. If you're not used to reading a Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small, tiny numbers are the verse numbers. They help us to get our way through the Bible. And everything we do this morning, um, once we desire to be centered around what God has revealed about Himself, of who He is in this book we call the Bible. Let's open God's Word and read from the book of Isaiah. We are working our way through this book. We're taking one chapter at a time and uh, trying to understand what God has done and has revealed Himself to be like in the past, and that revelation is true for us even today. So here's God's Word for us this morning. 
in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to speak to our hearts? Lord, we don't need words from a mere man. We need your words. We don't need to see each other. We need to see you. Holy Spirit, would you show us who God is as he revealed himself in his word through these words. We pray that you would open the eyes of the blind. 
We pray that you would open the ears of the deaf. We pray that you would bring life to those who are still dead. Spiritually. In their sins. We pray that you would do so this morning. For the sake of the glory of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Chapter 6 of Isaiah is by far one of the most well-known passages of Isaiah. If you were to ask anybody, tell me one favorite experience in the book of Isaiah that you like, that you know. Anyone who's been around in church for at least some time um, might say, well, the, the vision that Isaiah had of God. It's a unique experience, a very unique experience. Interestingly, when most people preach, or you may have heard sermons on the book of Isaiah, or particularly on Isaiah 6, you may have heard just the first eight verses, the vision of God, and Isaiah's commission, but then the rest of the vision, or the rest of the chapter, have quietly been put aside, have quietly been sidelined, ignored. We don't like to think about them very much, because they are a hard passage, and yet this, this chapter is a chapter in which God gives Isaiah a special mission to deliver us an important message. And the message is not a pleasant one. It's a message by which God's people are hardened, are blinded, are made deaf. Now some may wonder, why is it that this commission shows up only in chapter 6 of Isaiah. Why not at the very beginning of the, chapter of the book? From chapter 1, we know that Isaiah is a prophet that ministered during Uzziah's reign, well before Uzziah died. We might wonder why is it that Isaiah's commission is delayed until chapter 6 when Uzziah actually died? Well, Isaiah receives this very difficult mission, a unique mission. And chapters 1 through 5 are given to us as an introduction of this book to help us understand Israel's spiritual journey. Despite all that God has done for them, the people of Judah continued to live in rebellion against God. Despite all the things God has told them and revealed to them to do and who he was and how he wanted them to live like, the people of Judah, the people of Israel, continued despising the word of God. They kept living in their own way rather than God's way. So in chapter 5, the chapter previous to ours, just prior to ours, Isaiah gave a parable, a picture to try to help people visualize their spiritual state before God. And the picture is a love song. A love song about a vineyard. The owner had a vineyard. God had a vineyard. And he, this vineyard was planted in the best possible spot, the best possible vines. God had, the owner has done everything possible to make this vineyard fruitful and when it came time to, for this vineyard to give fruit, the owner discovered that the vineyard had only given 
wild grapes, bad fruit. And God says to his people, my people, tell me, what should the owner do to this vineyard? Because everything he could have done, he has done. And the point of the parable is, Israel, the people of Judah, the people of God, are the vineyard. God is the one who has done everything possible for them, and they still turn out to give bad grapes, bad fruit. So the owner says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll destroy my vineyard. I will let it go waste. I will tear down its walls so animals will come and ravage through it, so it'll be abused and, and literally become a waste. No one will take care of it anymore. God says, this is what I will do to my people. Because no matter what I've done for them and to them to bring them to me, they kept rebelling against me. So Isaiah is called by God to deliver the message that Israel's time of repentance has dried out. Israel, through their rebellion, has gotten to a point of no return. Now, who would give this message to God's people? At one point, God says, who shall we send? The story in chapter 6 of Isaiah is the story of how God commissions his prophet who belonged to a sinful generation to give this message. And the message of this chapter is very simple. A great God cleanses a ruined sinner for a new mission. A great God cleanses a ruined sinner for a new mission. We'll look at three points this morning as, as we see what Isaiah experienced in this chapter. The first thing we see in Isaiah about him is that he had a fresh vision of God. He had a fresh vision of God. The Lord gave Isaiah a glimpse of who he was, of who he is. We don't know exactly when this happened other than it happened during the reign of King Uzziah. King Uzziah, you can read his story in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. He started off well. He had a long reign, 50-some years of, of reign. He started off really well. And because he followed the Lord and he, he followed the instructions of, of one of the priests of Israel who led Uzziah in the ways of God, God prospered his ways. But then something happened midway. Uzziah became proud. And because Uzziah became proud and acted in his own pride, Against what God had said. God punished Uzziah with leprosy. Imagine being a king and now you're banished. You're still the king. You're king until you die. But now you're a leper. You can't even sit on your throne. You're cast away. Nobody can even see you. Or come into your presence closed because of your illness. Imagine the shame. Imagine the, 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 the political climate where Israel had a king, but they didn't have a king. They had a king, but he couldn't reign. And no one else could come 
to take his place because he was still alive. Politically, things started to, to work down quickly. And yet Israel became just like its king, proud, prosperous, doing what they wanted to do, not what God wanted them to do. And now, this year, when Isaiah has his vision of God, this particular year, Uzziah died. Perhaps people thought, oh, finally, now we can get a fresh start. Or some others may have said, now what? We're even in more confusion. Who's going to reign instead of Uzziah? Who's going to bring us out of the, the political mess that we, that we have gotten into? Isaiah gets a fresh vision of God. At a time when things were not going well, Isaiah saw the Lord. And this vision of God was going to give Isaiah an anchor for the rest of his life and for the rest of his ministry. And may I say, dear friends, to you this morning, to all of us, we today need to hear afresh from God. We need to hear afresh what Isaiah saw when he saw the Lord. Because our vision of God determines how we view ourselves or how we view everything else. The way we think of God determines how we view everything in life, ourselves and the rest. Have you ever heard people say, I like to think of God this way? Or, to me, God is like this. And they would describe how they feel about God. Friends, it doesn't matter what you like to think about God. I like to think about God that He is gracious and love. Well, those are true attributes of God, but those are not the only ones. Or I like to think of God that he, he is just going to forgive everybody. Well, that is not true. That's actually a lie. I wonder if you are content or you are in this mode of thinking about God the way you like him to be. What matters, dear friends, is not what you and I like God to be. What matters is what he's actually like. And Isaiah tells us what he saw when he had a vision of God. A couple things that Isaiah saw when he had this vision of God. First, sub-point one, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and, high and lifted up. In other words, the first view that, God, that Isaiah saw of God was his kingly authority. This picture of God sitting on a throne tells us that he is reigning. He is not like King Uzziah who was banished away from the throne. A king but not really reigning. That's not the picture of God. God is exactly the opposite of what Uzziah was. God is sitting on his throne. And his throne is high and lifted up. It's a picture of majestic reign. I wonder if this morning, this is how you think of God. He's a God of all authority. 
He's got authority over all things, including you, including your decisions, including your choices. Whenever you think about, well, that's my business. That's not God's business. I do whatever I want. Oh, friends, you in that moment are just defying the God who is sitting on this high throne. I would be fearful of you continuing in that direction. You must not see God the way he actually is. Otherwise, you would not say that about yourself. Then Isaiah Isaiah saw that the train of his robe filled the temple. I love how one pastor said this about, about this picture. And it's possible that Isaiah may have been in the temple when he had this vision of God. We don't know exactly where he was. But here's what Isaiah sees, that the train of the robe of God filled the temple. In other words, in the temple of God, there is room only for God. No room for anyone else's glory. Not for people's glory, not for people's agendas, but for God and Him alone. The temple was filled with God. That's what Isaiah saw. Now remember, in reality, remember what God said about all their sacrifices and all their rituals, how they're an abomination to God? Physically, the physical temple was filled with with all kinds of bad things. And yet Isaiah sees God, and he sees that in God's temple, the train of his robe fills everything. Notice what else Isaiah saw in this vision of God. Isaiah saw seraphim standing above God's throne. Angels. Now, the word for seraphim literally means burning ones. Isaiah saw burning ones sitting around the throne of God. Now, Isaiah will experience shortly the burning touch of one of these burning angels. But his first encounter with them is to notice their six wings. These burning ones had six wings. And what are they doing with their wings? Well, with two, they're flying. And then the other four are interesting. Look at at verse 2. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. The position of these seraphim, actually, let's look at that first. Being around the throne, give them a very close-up view of God. Closer than even Isaiah's view of God. Friends, have have you... some of you like going to games, watching a game live, like not just live on TV, but live, like being there. Um, you, you, you like having that experience of being in the stadium so you can see it uh, with your eyes directly, no need for TVs, just you see the whole thing. It's a wonderful experience for those who love sports. They get this personal experience of the game. But then there's those who pay a lot of money to get those front seats. You know, the first 10, 15, 20 rows. They they don't just see the game. They see the players close up. Well, in a sense, this is what Isaiah sees. He gets a vision of God firsthand. But then there's the seraphim who see God very closely. 
And actually what we get here, what Isaiah sees, is their close vision of God. It's an amazing sight, the very close-up experience. Now, we don't know why these seraphim are covering their feet with two wings. They're covering their eyes, their faces with, with two wings. It is possible that because of their closeness to God, even closer than Isaiah is able to see, that actually these, these burning ones are so close to the vision of God that they can't look directly at the glory of God. They must cover their faces. That is how amazingly glorious the glory of God is, that those who are in hand-touch distance from the throne of God, they're not able to look directly to the majesty of God. And then they cover their, their feet we don't know exactly what that symbolizes. It is possible that either it is a sign of their humility. They don't want God to look at them, at their feet. Or it's possible, it's possible that their feet might be a, a, a picture or symbolizing their way of life, their activities. And the fact that they have their, their feet covered means they only do what God tells them to do, not what they want to do. They're at the command of the Lord, and until the Lord sends them away on a mission, they got their feet covered, waiting for the Lord to tell them what to do. The point here is these seraphim, by the way they act, by their, by their body language, tell us something amazing. That not even they can look at the glorious majesty of God. And then it's not just their body language that communicates. Isaiah actually gets to hear what they say. So it's not just the body language, it's their words. And look, and look at what these angels, what they say when they, when they are in the presence of God, closer even than Isaiah. They are awed. They are awed about God's holiness. They say, verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Friends, those who are closest to God are overwhelmed by one attribute over and over and over again. And that attribute is his holiness. To declare that God is holy is to declare that he is supremely perfect, without any flaw, without any imperfection. God is the ultimate perfection, and that ultimate perfection sets him apart from all created things. He is pure in everything about him. What brings awe and amazement to the seraphim is the holiness of God. Friends, let me ask you this morning, when you think of God, Is holiness the first thing that comes to your mind? You might think about God's love. You might think about God's grace. And friends, those are true attributes of God. We should think about God's love. We should think about God's grace. But what can we learn from these angels who are closest to God in how they describe God 
and in what overwhelms them. The overarching declaration is that He, God, is holy, holy, holy. And the reason why it's repeated three times is not because they didn't get it. The reason why it's repeated three times is for emphasis. God's holiness is the most fundamental characteristic of who God is. He is many other things. He is many other wonderful attributes. But His holiness makes all those attributes perfect. He's perfect in all those attributes. And none of those attributes work against each other. And friends, this is not just the Old Testament thinking this way about who God is. If we go to the book of Revelation and read what John saw when he had a vision of God in Revelation chapter 4, the passage we read earlier in our service, in our, in our responsive reading time, John saw again a throne just like Isaiah. And around the throne he saw four living creatures with six wings. And what were they declaring? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Friends, this was not just a one-time declaration or a seasonal declaration about God. In Revelation, we read that they were saying this day and night. They never ceased to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Friends, may I say to you this morning that if the people of God are not interested in the holiness of God, heaven will be a very boring place for them. Because what heaven is ultimately about is bringing and declaring the holiness of God over and over and over again. And if you and I are not interested to learn about that, to, to be awed by that, we are going in a wrong direction, even though we might think we're going to heaven. The seraphim that Isaiah saw declare not only the holiness of God, they also declare His glory. The whole earth is filled with His glory, with His majesty. <sighs> Now remember, Isaiah's time, Isaiah's life, King Uzziah just died. The worship of God's people had become so corrupted. Politically, they were in a mess. Militarily, things were rising up. Threats were rising up from, from various nations around Israel. How can Isaiah see and declare, or the, I'm sorry, the angels declare, the whole earth is full of God's glory? You know what this tells us? There is a glory that we can't see. That's all over the earth. What you and I often see is the mess. What you and I often see is what the eyes of this flesh are able to tell us. But there is another realm in which the whole earth is full of God's glory. And for Isaiah to hear those words, Isaiah who thought the glory of God was in the, among the people of God or just for Israel, to hear the glory of God is for all the earth, not just for, for the Israelites, was a big deal. This is a glory that we don't see. The angels see it. Isaiah hears about it. Humans don't see it. Not yet. Friends, notice how seeing the holiness of God goes hand in hand with seeing His glory. Those who see God in His majesty become aware of His glory. His glory is not only for the people of God, but it's for the entire earth. 
Isaiah got to see a fresh vision of God. He saw God's reigning authority. He witnessed God's holiness and His glory. I want to encourage you, my dear friends, one of the classic books of the 20th century is a book written by J.I. Packer entitled, Knowing God. Friends, make it a goal not to die before you read that book. Here's what J.I. Packer wrote in the introduction, in the preface to that book. He said this, The conviction behind the book is that ignorance of God lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. Ignorance of God lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. Then he says, the Christian minds have been conformed to the modern spirit, the spirit that spawns great thoughts of man and leaves room for only small thoughts of God. Oh, friends, we need to ask the Lord to help him, to help us see him as he really is. Not as we would like him to be. We need to recapture the category of the holiness of God, of the sovereignty of God, of the authority of God over all creation, of his universal glory. When you read your Bible, friends, ask God to help you see his glory and majesty. And when you read your Bible, look for the evidences that God has placed in the scripture to tell us about his glorious being about how he describes himself, how others who see him describe him. A fresh vision of God. The second thing that Isaiah sees, and I recognize you might think if the, all the points are going to be as long as the first. We're going to be here for a long time. Don't worry, they're a little shorter. Here's the second thing Isaiah sees about God. I'm sorry, the second thing Isaiah sees in light of God. He sees a deep conviction of sin and its consequences. A deep conviction of sin and its consequences. When Isaiah saw the Lord and got a glimpse of what he is like, here's how Isaiah responded. Verse 5. Woe to me. In chapter 5, previous passage, we've seen six woes that the prophet gave against God's people because of their sin, because of their rebellion. There were six times the word woe, 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 woe for people's sins. Now Isaiah comes to realize now he is the object of that woe. He says in verse 5, why, why does he feel woe to me? Why? Look at verse 5, continues, for I am lost. Now, don't think here, lost in the sense of I lost my direction. That's not the kind of, you know, being lost that Isaiah is talking about. The word in Hebrew literally could also be translated, it would be probably better translated as I am ruined. I am done. I am fried. I am in trouble. The prophet of God, who perhaps, humanly speaking, religiously speaking, let's be honest, may have been probably the most religious person and clean person in Israel. The prophet of God gets to say, 
Woe to me, for I am ruined. Remember the story of the vineyard? The owner said, I'm going to destroy the vineyard. It's like Isaiah says, I, I'm part of that destruction. I'm ruined. And we might wonder, why is a prophet feeling this way? Continue verse 5. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, it's amazing that merely, merely unclean lips make Isaiah feel this way. Really, Isaiah? Just the unclean lips make you feel so ruined? Are you sure? Isaiah couldn't say about, about himself, or I am an adulterer. Or I, uh, I'm a bank robber. Or I'm a violent man. All we know about Isaiah, he was, he was a pretty good kid growing up. We don't have any sense of particular rebellious actions that he, he, he exerted. But then he also says, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now we know that a lot more was going on in Israel than just unclean lips. Chapters 1 through 5 describe a whole bunch of things that was going on. And yet, Isaiah here recognizes that he is among the people who are unclean. And the picture that he's, he, he just talks about his lips. Oh, friends, it's possible that Isaiah is saying here that simply unclean lips are enough to make him ruined before a holy God. There could be a lot of other things that could be brought in. But by saying unclean lips, simply saying as little as that. Think about a white lie. Think about exaggerating things. Think about times when you have not spoken as things really have been. Unclean lips are enough to make the prophet stand utterly ruined before a mighty God. The point is that what we might consider to be the lightest of offenses before God is enough ground to bring us to ruin before Him. Notice again why Isaiah feels this way at the end of verse 5. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Friends, when we get a glimpse of God, we see our sin for what, truly, for it, what it truly is. A sign that we are growing closer to God is that we become more aware of our sin. A sign that we are growing closer to God is that we are bothered more by our sin. If you are bothered less by your sin, you are not going closer to God. You are growing more distant from God. I love how John Calvin in the Institutes, the very first introduction of the Institutes, very first few chapters, he says this, Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. He goes on to say later, 
As a consequence, we must infer that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. How often, my dear friend, do you prefer to compare yourself to others and you think that you are okay because you are not as bad as someone else? Friends, such comparison is never, ever helpful. It will only put you in more hardness of heart. It will only build you up in more self-righteousness. The only way to increase in understanding who we truly are is by looking at who God is. Isaiah comes to see himself as unclean because he has seen the Lord. He has seen His holiness. But Isaiah sees not only his sin, he also sees his consequence of sin. He sees himself deserving rightly the righteous judgment of God. That's why he feels ruined. But then something surprising happens with Isaiah. Something totally unplanned for. One of the seraphim, one of those burning ones, one of those who are closest to God's throne, they take a coal, a burning coal from the altar of God and come to Isaiah. Isaiah. Take that coal and touch his lips. And notice what he says. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In other words, in response to Isaiah's confession of sin and embracing the consequence of his sin, God chose to cleanse Isaiah. Isaiah didn't have to work for it. Isaiah didn't have to start doing good deeds for that. It was God's gracious offer. It was God's gracious initiative. And notice the two actions that describe Isaiah's cleansing of sin. His guilt was taken away. His sin was atoned for. To atone for sin means to make payment for it. It means to provide the redemption for, from it. In other words, Isaiah's sin was paid for. You say, by what? Remember, the coal was taken from the altar. The altar represented the place where sin was atoned for. We don't get the details now of how it will happen. We know more in chapter 53 of Isaiah that event that Christ is the one who would come in, shed his blood, allow people to crucify him, shed his blood, and with his sacrifice he would enter into the heavenly realm and bring himself as a propitiation, as the payment of sin for all those who would repent of their sin and trust in God, in Christ, for forgiveness. Oh, God, oh friends, God has provided a way for Isaiah to be cleansed. God has provided a way for you and I to be cleansed of our sin if only we would confess our sin, if only we would recognize what we deserve for our sin and trust in God's means, the blood of Christ, to cleanse us. And He would and He will if and only if we turn to Him 
If we respond like Isaiah and say, oh, woe to me, for I am ruined. I deserve that punishment. Yeah, I might be religious, I might be a prophet, I might be a good guy, but in the sight of God, I am unclean. Oh, friend, if you feel this way this morning, if you've never repented of your sin, never trusted in Christ, I encourage you, I plead with you, make today a day when you realize who you truly are in the sight of God. Come to Him. Repent of your sin. Trust in Christ. If you'd like to know more about that, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. Or I encourage you to talk to another believer, another Christian, perhaps someone who invited you today. Isaiah gets this amazing declaration. Your sin is paid for. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just a payment of sin that's paid for. It's that the guilt is also removed. The guilt is also removed. We need both. We need both. We don't need just the forgiveness of sin. We need the removal of guilt. In Jesus, Paul says, for now there is no more condemnation for those who belong to Christ. Do you belong to God? Do you belong to Jesus? If so, have you professed your repentance of sin and trust in the Lord Jesus? If you have not done so, we encourage you to do so. Because those who belong to Jesus make it public. There's no secret agents of Jesus. There's only public agents. There's only those who confess him publicly. And those who publicly confess Jesus, Jesus says, I will never, I will never let you down. I will confess you, you before the Father. Oh, friends, if you belong to Jesus, you'll make it known. If you belong to Jesus, there's now no more condemnation. Isaiah gets it. Isaiah's sin was paid for. His guilt was removed. Some may wonder, why didn't God do the same for Isaiah's generation? Even though Isaiah recognized that he's just as sinful as the people among whom he lived, Isaiah did something that the rest of the people did not do. They did not recognize their sin. They did not believe that God is wrathful against their sin. Therefore, they never said, woe to me, like Isaiah said. It is this conviction of sin, it is this recognition of the right judgment of God that set Isaiah apart from the rest of his generation. Friends, this is a prerequisite for us to experience God's cleansing of our sin that we should see our sin in light of His holiness, that we would embrace that God is right to judge us for our sin, even though we may not have seen our sin until we actually compared ourselves with God. God is right to punish us. And we embrace that, we believe that, that He would. And then cast ourselves upon God and say, Lord, woe to me. Have mercy upon me. When I ask people to tell me how they became a Christian, I often ask a clarifying question. 
I'm telling them, I don't want to know when you change a label. I mean, when is it that you became aware of your sin and that your sin needs to be dealt with? I remember putting this question to someone a few years ago and specifying that what I mean is I want to know how you became aware of your sin and that your sin needs to be dealt with. And the response I got back from the, from the other side was, I am not comfortable with the way you phrase that question. I don't believe I need to worry about that. Okay. Well, that tells, and yet he called, called himself to be a Christian. That told me, told me he had a very different experience of what true Christianity is about. True Christianity, the true Christian experience, we become Christians when the first step is when we come to recognize our ruined state before God. And if someone never says, I, I don't know what you're talking about, then I don't know what you mean when you say you're a Christian. It's that simple, dear friends. Isaiah's vision of God caused him to see God's authority, God's holiness, God's glory. Isaiah's vision of God then caused him to see his own sinfulness and right punishment. Because Isaiah saw his sin and his ruin, God graciously offered him full cleansing of his sin and of his guilt. And my dear friends, God wants to do the same to you this morning. If you too would see yourself in that light. And then finally, the third point is Isaiah gets a new mission. After all that, seeing the vision of God, glory of God, seeing his ruin, his sinfulness, God gives Isaiah a new mission. Notice what God commands Isaiah to say, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Verse 10, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In other words, God is telling Isaiah, I am looking to send someone who is going to blind the eyes of this people, who's going to harden the hearts of this people. Friends, this sounds awful. And it is. You know why it's awful? Because there's nothing else God can do with people who would refuse to see themselves in light of God's word. There's nothing else. So God said, remember in chapter 1, God said in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the fruit of the land. God said, I want to cleanse you. But if you're not willing to hear what I'm saying, and if you're not willing to respond to what I'm calling you to do, there's only one last thing I can do. That is, wipe you out. I'm going to cleanse the, word, the earth of you. 
There's nothing else I'm left to do. Friends, Isaiah's message, it's part of the judgment of God against the rebellion of his people. Remember how God already described his people as a vine who are ready to be destroyed. There's nothing else to be done to the vine. God had this purpose for Isaiah's preaching to make the hearts of his people not respond, but grow in hardness. You might wonder, but is that fair? I still don't believe it's fair. The answer is, it is fair. Here's why. God is finally giving them what they desired for decades. They have rebelled against this word of God. And now God uses his word to give them more of what they sought after. They wanted hardness of heart. They're going to get more of it. They want rebellion. They're going to get more of it. Friends, there are times when God's word will harden, will harden people even more. But I want to be very clear here. God never hardens people's hearts against their wishes, but only in accordance with their wishes. God never hardens anyone's heart against their wishes, only in accordance to their wishes. Friends, if you don't get that, I want to say it again. God does never hardens people against their wishes. In other words, nobody can tell God at the end of the day, God, I really wanted to follow you, but you're the one who hardened my heart. Oh, no, dear friends, it will not, that excuse will not work. And the book of Isaiah is proof of that. God is not hardening their hearts against their wishes. God is now hardening their hearts because for five chapters, that's what they wanted. And now God says, that's what you want? That's what you'll get. I'm sending a prophet to give you more of what you've been after. This means that even though God is now sending Isaiah to harden people's hearts, they still remain responsible. It is amazing, my dear friends, that this passage in particular is quoted by each of the four gospel writers to explain why in the ministry of Jesus, when people heard the word of God through the very Son of God who came from heaven, and even after he made miracle after miracle after miracle in their presence, they still chose to rebel and to reject. Why? It is so that God's word would be fulfilled. They have been rebelling against the Lord for a long time. And now, the reason why they still refuse Jesus is because they are, they are trapped. They are enslaved into their desire for that rebellion. And the reason why Jesus speaks in parables, dear friends, it is not to illustrate and to make more clear it is actually to hide. So that those who had been rebelling against the Lord will hear 
but never understand. Would see, but not get it. Paul says something similar in the book of Acts. A fifth time when this passage is using Acts 28. Go read that on your own. Why people, the people of Israel have chosen to reject Christ is because they are fulfilling what Isaiah spoke about. And in, in the book of John, chapter 12, we are told that Isaiah actually spoke about Christ. Amazing. And Paul said also in 2 Corinthians, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. The same message can be a message that hardens some and brings other to life. The same message to the same crowd can bring some to, more, to death or others to life. Friends, be aware whenever you hear God's word, be aware of how you respond. Do you respond with an excuse? Do you respond with rejection? Do you respond with delay? Oh, not today. Tomorrow, when I'll get older, when I get out of this mess. Oh, no, friends, don't delay. There's no other place or no other time to bring your mess than bring it to God. Bring your mess to God. Bring it all. And tell him, God, have it all. I need you. I am ruined. Bring it. A challenge for us is to recognize also that the preacher does not determine the result that God intends. Friends, would you invite Isaiah to be your pastor? Would pastors invite Isaiah to be a keynote speaker at a pastor's conference? After looking his track record and success rates and numbers? It is by far one of the hardest things to recognize that some, there are some situations when God is calling some pastors, some preachers to have a ministry of what physically looks like a failure. It's not up to me to decide what job assignment God is giving me. My job is to do what God calls me to do and declare his word as he intended it. It is God's job whether he wants to close down a church or bring another up. It is God's job to determine, I am done with these people. I keep telling them to follow me. They have only, they have only defiled my name in that neighborhood. I am closing down that church. It's God's determination. But even in the midst of that hard assignment that God gave Isaiah, there is a glimpse of hope. Isaiah says, and hey, I get it. I, I'm trying to put myself in Isaiah's shoes and say, Lord, how long will that assignment be? Is this a week? Is it just one message? I mean, I can, I can deal with one message. I think my church will still handle me well, even if it's just one. I, I think they won't kick me out. How long, O oh Lord? And I, the Lord says, until cities lie waste without an inhabitant, houses without people, and the Lord removes people far away. In other words, until I carry out all my judgment against this generation. Until then, you're going to speak this message. And then he says, even after that, 
even the 10% that remain in the land, even they will be burnt. In other words, Isaiah, you got this message until this generation of people is totally out, gone. But that's not the end. It's the end for them, but it's not the end for me. It's not the end for my people. Then look at verse 13. Though a tenth remain in it, I will be, it be burnt again like a terebinth on an oak whose stump remains when it, it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And then you go to Isaiah 11, chapter 1. Just a few chapters later. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Oh, dear friends. Oh, dear friends, the message that Isaiah is to give is not a hopeless message. It's a total destruction message for his generation, but it's not a hopeless message. Isaiah's ministry was looking forward to what God will do after that generation was wiped out. By the way, it's not the first time when God did wipe out that generation. Remember the first generation of the Israelites in the wilderness? None of them made it in. None of them made it in. Then Jesus comes, and one of the first things he does is to select 12 disciples. Why? Because he's starting over. It is in the coming of Christ that God is starting over with that tree that he has cut out and burnt. From the, shoot, from the stump that was left, a new shoot will arise, and it has arisen. Oh, dear friends, Isaiah's ministry had a primary effect of judgment and rejection for his generation, but it had a, an effect and a message of hope for the generations to come. God will restore his people. Friends, that is our hope for today. And if we prove to be among those who benefit from this message of hope, it is only if we, to receive it with sorrow like Isaiah, with conviction of sin, and with a desire to turn away from it and believe in the God who is able to restore that which he has wiped out. The God who is able to bring back to life that which he has killed. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch, branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Friends, if God has taken down the tree of Isaiah's generation, he has done it in order to start a new growth which would be fulfilled in Christ. Christ is calling you and I today to belong to Him, to be part of that renewal of God's people, the rebuilding of God's people, and His glory will be to the ends of the earth. Why? Because now His people are no longer limited to the nation of Israel. Now His people are, limit, are, are limitless to the ends of the earth from every tribe and nation and language. God is bringing forth a new people. And in that people, he calls us to belong. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who often is able to wipe us off our feet, to show us we are not what we think we are. 
not in light of who you are. Lord, thank you that in light of your holiness, it is by grace that you actually see our sin and our ruin. Thank you, Father, that in light of that, you don't leave us there, but you offer cleansing and redemption. Oh, Lord, would you do for us today what you have done for Isaiah? We pray that in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor.